publishers are afraid of funny books. I mean, it's really sad, but they are because, uh, you know, you know what it's like. You tell 10 people the same joke, you know, five of them will laugh and five of them will stare at you. So publishers will get sent books that are meant to be comic and they'll go, well, I think this is hilarious, but will anybody else? Or they'll think maybe this is the funniest thing in the world, but I just don't get it. So the safest thing to do is just pass. The only pressure that actually matters is the pressure you feel to write a better book. You've got to have the ambition to write a, a book that's better than the last. You won't, of course, that can't be possible. You know, I always thought there must have come a point where Usain Bolt went, do you know what? That's about as fast as I can bloody yeah. run. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to beat that. And it may be, of course, that your best book is 10 years behind you. You don't know that. I have so many writer friends who are struggling with deadlines or have missed deadlines and are panicking and are going, oh God, I've got a month to write, you know, 50,000 words. I'd, I'd, I would have a breakdown. Hello, welcome to another brand new edition of Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm still Natalie Jameson. Less, less singy songy. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I quite liked it in the uh, Joanne Harris episode where you sung your name. It felt like you were doing your own jingle. Did it? Yeah, yeah, let's not go down that route. <laughs> do, 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 Natalie Jameson. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> no, it's all right. So this week uh, is exciting because it's somebody that I haven't met, but well, I briefly met on a radio thing a few weeks ago, but hadn't sort of met. You weren't met. in the same place. No. Uh, and Radio's somebody... weird like that. Can we just say yeah. that? People yeah. come up to me and they go, Phil, and I go, yeah. And they obviously know. And they go, it's blah. And I go, yeah. We did that thing on the radio together. And I went in person. And they go, no. I said, well, how would I know? It's you then. Yeah, yeah. It's just a voice on the other end. Um, but you know today's author pretty well. Yeah, Mark Billiam. So um, I've interviewed Mark loads. The first time on Five Live, I think I shocked him a bit because I said, uh, the first time I ever heard of you, I saw you headlining the comedy store because he used to be a stand-up, right? Yeah. And I think not a lot of people know that about him because it's kind of in the dim and distant. And... Um, and he was like, did you? When? What year? I haven't done stand-up for ages. And it was. And then the next time I interviewed him, coincidentally, there were some really bad storms in Birmingham and it had made the news. And so because it was five live, you were doing half into half breaking news updates. Mm-hmm. And after about 10 minutes of this, he goes, he sees it on the telly behind me and he goes, I think that's my road. <laughs> <laughs> and there were roofs blown off houses. And he was like, wow. really, it, could, it could have been. Yeah, I don't think it was in the end, his house, but it was his road. So, yes, we've had these really odd encounters, but I just, first of all, he's a really, well, you'll get this from it. He's just a really lovely guy. He's warm. He's also really funny. He really makes me laugh, really makes me laugh. And um, I think he's a man who's completely comfortable in his own skin. And so then there's no kind of um, airs and graces. Do you know what I mean? He's just really happy chatting. And and he loves writing, doesn't he? And he loves other writers. And I remember him saying to me once on a radio interview, it was at Harrogate, and so I was, I was asking about whether there was any competition. And he says, oh, crime writers, he said, despite the fact that we kill people on the page, we're the nicest people in the world. He mm-hmm. said, because we know that there aren't as enough crime books to satisfy the appetite of the crime reader. So he says, if I put a release date on my book and then it turns out that Val McDermott's putting one out or Lee Childs, it doesn't matter because the fans will buy all of them and they'll read the one a week. Yeah. Yeah. So he said it's a very supportive community, which I really got from Harrogate. I really got the sense of being in that crime writing festival, that they all help each other and you could phone someone and go, I'm stuck on a plot point. And they'd all, you know, 
Yeah, it did generally seem supportive. And and I really like the warmth that you get from his writing as well. Mm. And you're going to get that from this chat. So mm. we're going to shut up. And mm. I think I'm just going to go. Uh, here is Mark Billingham talking about his latest book, The Start of a New Series. Uh, and it's being introduced by Phil. Our guest today on Bestsellers has won countless crime writing awards. You will know his hero, Tom Thorne, from both his books and the TV adaptations. And now, for the first time in 20 years, Mark Billingham is back with a brand new series, a brand new lead character, a brand new setting, and a change of tone for his writing. And I'm hugely excited to tell you that he's our guest on Bestsellers with The Last Dance. How are you, buddy? I'm very well, Phil. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well. And I really, really love this change of style for you. But I want to, oh, before geez, we even mate. get into it, I want to know what prompted it. Um, well, a couple of things. I'd been approached to uh, write a new detective drama for the BBC. Right. And so I developed this at, you know, a snail's pace because that's that's how fast television moves. Right. So having written umpteen drafts and created this character and started to, you know, get heartily fed up of it. Um, I was just, you know, casually chatting about it to my publisher who said, write the books. Just write, what, you know, you've been living with this guy. I'd been living with this guy for two years and written so much about him. And I thought, right, what a fantastic idea. So I sat down to write Miller as, as a novel, knowing way more about him than I ever knew about Tom Thorne. I knew exactly who Miller was when I started The Last Dance and and thoroughly loved it. And, I mean, I've always subscribed to the to the theory that in order to keep your existing series fresh, you've got to step away and do something else and get out mm. of your comfort zone and all that stuff. So it was just another example of that. But at, but yeah, the start of a new series. And I, I always knew it was going to be. I knew it wouldn't be a one-off. And what was going on with the telly in the background then? Was that was the telly well, still... Was that like still... <laughs> were they saying, oh, this is still going to happen? I was or like, that... have I missed it? Did that come out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the weird thing about... Oh, yeah, no, it was on. Um, yeah, no, those <laughs> wheels are still turning incredibly slowly. Right. Um, it was, uh, you know, again, to not being coy about it, it was, it was written as a vehicle for a well-known comedian slash actor. Right. Uh, who's, you know, uh, that is happening no more. And, and funnily... Lovely to see uh, you back on telly, Mark. <laughs> cheers, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> and the BAFTA goes... <laughs> funnily enough, um, now having written two books about Miller, because I've already written the second one, I now have a different actor-comedian very much in my head uh, uh, who, who I think is going to be approached. So we shall see. We shall see. Shall I, I, I cool. don't know. Is it too early to tell you who was in my head? Would you like oh, to know on, who I imagine? Your head. No, that'd be great. It's I very mean, interesting. Um, uh, sadly, I should preface it by saying, sadly, no longer with us. Um, but oh, remember... not going to be in the TV series. Kid no. James. No. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Max Miller. <laughs> Go on, then. Who? Um, I thought of Paul Rutter's character from um, No Offense. Do you remember that on Channel Four? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just kind of the way that he played that is uh, Miller to me is very uh, he's he's sharp but he's languid and he loves turning a line and we don't know whether he's turning a line because he wants to try and make people laugh or whether it's just he can't stop himself from doing it. It's his way of coping with the grief. It's his yeah. way of disarming people. He's he's ceased caring. He's kind of you know he cares about the truth and he cares about the victims, but he doesn't care how he gets to it and he doesn't care what other people think about him, which is makes him a joy to write. To be honest. <laughs> So just on that TV versus novel writing yeah. thing. So because the the book, The Last Dance, opens in a really enigmatic way and you don't quite know what's going on and you sort of learn that 
Miller, your protagonist, his wife has died and he's going back to work, but it kind of unfolds in a really um, a cinematic way. Is that the exact same opening that you'd written for telly or have you kind of changed it all around? I've changed it a bit. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot in the first Miller book. There's a lot in The Last Dance that, that would have found its way into the uh, into the TV show that may or may not. <laughs> uh, yeah, although, of course, the obvious difference, uh, which is the reason I, I love writing books and and have a, you know, uh, love-hate relationship with writing for television, is that you're in his head. Yeah. You know, which you can't be on television unless you have some cheesy voiceover. You know, all your character is is what they say and what they do. And, then, and also, of course, you're then at the mercy of designers and directors and god help us actors and all all that stuff so everything changes <laughs> whereby you know i can be in miller's head so i can tell the reader exactly what he's thinking um which is a joy he was quite an interesting character to spend to spend time with you know yeah. although you might not have designed the route i wonder if it's more likely to get sped up because well, I, th- I think this will go to number one, and when it goes to number one, then they go, "Oh, it's a number one book. We should make it." Well, it would be ever so funny if, if you know, television came knocking, and I'd, I'd have to kind of explain, you know, uh, and and I'd have to, as a courtesy, approach the original production company that I was involved with. Um, so, uh, look, who knows? I, I mean, I've had such a weird, complicated relationship with television for the last couple of decades um, that you know. I'm always very excited when I when I get involved in that world and and very quickly realize why I don't do it very often because right. it is a guy it's so different you know right. um right it's that writing by committee to a degree um or you know writing cooperatively and collaboratively if you want to put it nicely but sometimes when you, when you get notes from 18 different directions and they're saying you know that stuff we asked you to take out in draft 13 uh can you put that back in and the stuff we asked you to put in in draft seven can you now take that out and eventually you start going what this isn't getting any better you know whereas the process of 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 editing a novel i've always found makes the book better it will always make the book better at the end of the day but you're normally just dealing with an editor you know um, who you've known for a long time and so yeah they are very different processes as a as a brief aside um i don't know if you listen to the script notes podcast i don't know no i don't Uh, which is uh it's been going for years now but it's um two writers john august and craig mazin um so craig obviously just recently did the last of us and the chernobyl series but they just had um a really fascinating episode a few weeks ago um they're not doing it at the moment because of the writer strike in america but they had a whole episode where as writers they have developed a presentation to go into tv companies like disney like all the huge ones and give them uh give them this presentation about how to give notes to writers yeah i mean the note you get quite often in television is can you just do it again better uh, <laughs> what and, and also of course there the, the major difference is when you do get notes on television from production executives and channel heads and all that stuff it's not like a discussion they, you know, these are the things that you know, have to happen. Things should be changed. Whereas my editor will give me pages of notes, and but at the end of the day, if I want to be hard-headed about it, I don't have to do any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 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 is a kind of level of control which is quite hard to say goodbye to. You know, do you know Linda Laplante said a similar thing to us. I just wonder because we get quite a few debut writers on this mark who've who've got big quick. Is there mm. any kind of would you mind offering some advice or maybe just some pointers maybe of if you're gonna if your book gets snapped up and you get really excited by seven figure deals, what's the advice on dealing with TV and film? 
Well, my advice, whatever your dealings with TV and film, write the next book. Uh, you know, I, I do know several writers without naming them who have been in exactly that situation where have got incredibly lucky. And you know, I'm not saying they haven't written a really good book, but then got incredibly lucky and everything's, you know, everything's lined up perfectly and they have a big movie and a big first book. And it's great. And following that up is really, really hard. And then mm. five or six years later, it's like, aren't, aren't you the guy that wrote that book that got made uh, into that film? Right. It, it, it's really pretty tough. I mean, obviously, it's a good, it's a lovely problem to have, but you you mustn't forget what started it, which is the book you wrote, and you need to write another one. Um, uh, it, it's, it, I mean, it's even if your even if your book isn't getting getting made into a movie or a TV series, writing a book that becomes huge out of nowhere can be very problematic. For writers, it, you know, it's it's much easier to build, you know, than suddenly go boom. Here's a massive bestseller because because then quite often publishers go, can you just write us another one that's quite like that? Yeah, you know, they don't give you the freedom to go off in a different direction. So just on that, with your writing, was there like a book that tipped it over the edge for you, where you were kind of like then consistently doing well and did you have that sort of slow burn approach or was it kind of right out of the gate that I I, I did have all that incredible luck uh early on you know I got a publishing deal on 30,000 words uh I, I, the first book went top 10 the second book probably was the one that was the book you're talking about which was a mm. book called Scaredy Cat that was the book that was was a very big hit and I got a gold dagger nomination for it and all that kind of stuff but but and by that time you're sort of established it sounds really weird because you still feel like you've been doing it 5 minutes but you've yeah. already got some readers and and from then on it's like it's yours to lose you know you've you, <laughs> it's just this voice in your head going don't mess this up don't mess this up um but yeah i mean you know you do need that phenomenal amount of luck you need that manuscript whether it's 30,000 words or a manuscript where you've been working on for 10 years you need that to land on the right desk at the right time you know to fact pass in front of the right agent at the right time who then sends it to the publisher that's looking for somebody just like you and mm -hmm. you know there are so many variables and you do need a phenomenal amount of luck and i know a dozen writers who can write me under the table who who just never had that break never had that luck you know so let's set up the last dance then um right. uh, so we've mentioned it's a brand new series I've, I've mentioned the lead character miller a little bit in some of his traits but what i don't want to do because i think he's unhelpful to a reader is try and compare Miller and Thorne. I know some people will inevitably do this because it's both your work, but mm -hmm. I think <clears throat> for someone coming to this brand new, what do they need to know? Well, this is the, this is the joy of it. They don't need to know anything. Uh, you know, it, it, it is literally all there, and Miller will just take shape before your very eyes. Um, and he he will be the Miller, you know, he will be the Miller you want him to be. I mean, that is that is the beauty of reading, you know, as opposed to the screen. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about that, but, you know, you read a book and you you put flesh on the back. I'm, I'm a big believer in not describing characters so much, certainly not physically. I don't describe Miller. Um, and I never really described Thorne because because th that character then becomes the, the one the readers want them to be. And, you know, it's great. I, I remember... Back when when Thorne was be, being made for telly, and we had a preview of it, and we showed it at the Edinburgh Book Festival, had this big screen behind me, and they ran this trailer, and I was you know hugely excited and everything, and then the lights went up, and I said, "So what do you think?" And Orman in the front row went, "He's too tall," and you just go, "Oh, okay, he's, he's not he's not the, the the Thorne you had in your head." And you know, by the time people have read Miller, there'll be all sorts. I mean, you know, you've already told me that. Mm. 
the actor you think should play mm. Miller, although he's not going to, mm. unfortunately. Um, but you know, it's it's you, everything you need to know about Miller. You'll you'll get to know. It's not like there are. You know, he doesn't have a past. You know, he's just there. I mean, he does obviously fictionally, and you will find out about it when you read mm. the book. Um, he is, I hope, likable, infuriating. Uh, you know, engaging, strange. Um, you know, he's not he's not your run of the mill copper. Um, but he's in quite an extraordinary situation. He he has gone back to work far too early after the death of his wife, the violent death of his wife, uh, and he's dealing with grief in a very strange and idiosyncratic way. And that is the way grief works. You know, there is no template for it. Uh, it hits you at odd moments. It jumps out at you. It makes you behave in strange ways. Um, but 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 for me, the strongest impulse behind this book is a comic one. Um, and, you know, that is where it's very different from Thorne. So I wanted uh, to read a bit, which illustrates that, if you don't mind. Well, I, I, don't, know whether, I don't know whether it'll illustrate that, but it's, and maybe. Um, so no, no is, I've chosen a bit. I've chosen a bit oh, to yeah, read. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell yeah, me yeah, what yeah, to read. Yeah, yeah. No, I've chosen That's a bit some for sort me of to read to you. I'm going to read back oh, you're, to oh, you. Oh, okay. So yeah. I put this book away. So many misunderstandings. So I put this book away again. <laughs> I put it away again. Go on, then you're going to read a bit. All right. Yeah, because I because this uh, the reason I like this, it really made me laugh, this did, right? And um, But there's no... You, you, like This could be anywhere in the plot, right? It's the beginning of chapter two, but it doesn't matter. There's, you, you won't find any spoilers from this. But I think this sums up the tone that you get both through Miller directly and through the kind of narrator's voice, okay? Which arguably one and the same. Miller wasn't sure how long he'd been standing there like a lemon waiting to go in, peering through the window of the incident room. Too long, probably. Long enough to clock several of the usual faces anyway. The looks on a few of them when they noticed him. Like someone had slapped them in the gob with a wet fish or they spotted George Clooney in Tesco's. Like they'd coughed and followed through. End of paragraph. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm in. You've got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice scatological joke to get yeah. you to, to, to get you hooked, Phil. Were you frustrated <laughs> um, when you were writing your previous books that you couldn't put more humour in? Is that why you've got this? Yeah, you're right to a degree. I mean, there would be times when I'd think of a joke and go, but it doesn't it doesn't fit with with these books. It doesn't because Thorne isn't a you know he's not a, a wisecracker. He's not a gag merchant. His his best mate Hendrix. You know the the scenes the scenes with them. There would be mm. some black humour. But if Thorne thought of something funny, it would be a week later. You know. He's, <laughs> so I would think of a joke and go, oh no, I can't put that in. Whereas with this, if I thought of a joke, it's in there. Um, because I've become increasingly convinced, increasingly convinced and deeply passionate about the fact that humour and seriousness are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. They really, really are not and should never be. Um, so even though the subject matter of the book is still very dark, I'm still writing about death and loss and grief and pain and violence, um, I'm coming at it through humour. I'm trying to write something, that, and this sounds very pretentious, that is tragicomic. That's the tone I'm aiming for, something tragicomic. I think it was what Chekhov went for, and I'm not talking about the one in Star Trek. Well, um, I, I remember Ben Alton <laughs> saying, if you take serious and funny and put them together, you get seriously funny. Yeah, well, yeah, and of course, and of course, one of the oldest definitions of comedy is tragedy plus time. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm taking somebody who's, you know, who has had a terrible tragedy and seeing how he deals with it, um, and he deals with it through a lot of off, often misjudged comedy. <laughs> but I think the comedy works really well because... Not only does it come out in the dialogue, led by Miller a lot of the time, but not exclusively so either. Um, I really liked how you use it as a descriptive 
method as well. So I'll just read this brief sentence where you write, um, a few minutes later, they turned into the industrial estate and parked in front of a grim grey building that has clearly been the work of an architect with anger issues. <laughs> and again, like it's so descriptive, but it yeah. works. You, you so well. You've got an image. I had an image yeah. straight away with that one <laughs> sentence. Yeah. Oh, that's the that is that the is that the place that's called Tech That? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I took the rest of the day off after I came out. <laughs> Tech That. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. No, I had, I had a lot of fun writing it. I mean, it's weird. Some books that you that you end up being pleased with are not fun to write at all because you know there were some thorn books, some of the darker thorn books that made me very angry when I was writing them. Um, I wrote a book called Love Like Blood about so-called honor killing and got so angry writing that book and researching that book. And I thought this is either going to be really good or really terrible um because of that. And in the end it was fine. Um but this I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed doing this from start to finish. And I've just like I said I've written two of them back to back now. And uh, you know, in a way I'm slightly miffed I've got to go back to Tom Thorne. Um but I, I mean, I will. <laughs> I won't be miffed once I start it. But it's like I want to do some more Miller. Well, we'll get to that maybe a bit later on because that you do mention at the back of this that Thorn will be back. It's almost to yes. reassure your fans. Absolutely, I and mean, it doesn't matter how many times you tell them. It doesn't matter how many times you know online or whatever. They go, it's just the end of Thorn. No, <laughs> how many times do I have to say it? Um, anyway. It seems unfair that you're the fellow that wrote it and you're the only one who hasn't read from it yet. So yeah. should we do your reading now? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm just going to do. Uh, I'm just going to read the very, very beginning of it um okay the colored lights from more than a million lamps seem to dance above the town's main streets and their reflections shimmer on the surface of the black sea just beyond on the street itself a thousand neon signs dazzle and buzz and the slow moving traffic has become a pulsating necklace of red and white beads to the casual observer gazing down from the top of the tower perhaps or from a penthouse apartment in one of the expensive blocks that have sprung up in recent years this might be las vegas if that casual observer really squinted and had never been to Las Vegas. And that, so it's, it's, it's sure, yeah, sure. But I mean, <laughs> again, it just emphasises the the tone on this. Do you know the other, just before I leave this alone, I just wondered whether, so as a reader, I, you know, I love crime and we've done panels before you and I with some of the best crime writers in the world, yourself included. And um, <laughs> you did know how he threw that in at the end. Yeah. With some of the best crime writers yeah. in the world. And you. <laughs> Yourself. <laughs> I, I, I bet, like, knowing Phil, like, his mind was probably going, uh, present company notwithstanding. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. He was. He was. My mind was going, if I don't say, he's going to think I didn't mean him. Um, <laughs> and um, But sometimes you just need some levity, don't you? You need some light amongst all of the blood and the bullets and the... Do you know what I mean? Oh, you absolutely have to. And and there's crime writers I hugely admire, who I'm sure you've spoken to in the past, the likes of John Connolly, who just funny as all hell, actually. Right. Chris right. Brookmeyer, really, really funny. And, uh, you know, the 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 flippant way to, to say it is that, you know, we're getting all our badness out on the page or, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. But, I, I, you know, you and I have had this discussion before, but crime novels are structured like jokes. You know, they really are. It's all about the setup and then the reveal and the timing yeah, yeah. when you reveal that key bit of information and there's punchlines, but they're all usually very dark. But the structure works in exactly the same way. So, you know, it's always been there. My 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 first instinct is always comedic. Um, so God knows why I've written, you know, been writing dark crime novels for <laughs> odd years. But well, I think that makes it um very British as well, because that's a, a British reaction, right? To bad news yeah. is to crack a joke. Um... Well, of course it is. And, and I've always had this image in my head, a strange image, which I've never put in a book, but a, but an image of some people leaving a mortuary, mm-hmm. having had to do the worst thing imaginable. 
you know, and identify a loved one and walk turning the corner and slipping on a banana skin. It's that kind of idea. You know, it's yeah. that kind of idea. It's laughing at a funeral. It's it's those because because that is what life is like. A, a book or a film or whatever that didn't have that in would not be true to life. It really, really wouldn't. You know, um, so, yeah, I think humour is hugely important. You know what? You just reminded me of my nan's funeral. And at the end of it, we were all in a queue. You had to shake hands with the vicar. So me and my brother in this queue kind of just really to fit in more than anything else. And there's an old boy in front of us. And as he shakes the vicar's hand, he says to him, lovely service, father, as always. And the father says, oh, oh, right. He says, third one this week. I'll see you Friday. And he walked off. <laughs> and me and my brother were in bits. It was our nan's funeral. It literally made us both corpse. Oh, I, lo- I know. I love those stories. My friend, you must know this story. My friend is a humanist minister, and he does conducts a lot of funerals. And they, you know, that most crematoria uh, crematoriums have um, uh, they use Spotify. They just use Spotify for the music. They oh, have right. they have like a system, right? You know? And so he has the order of service, and he meets the relatives, and this is what they want played, and they wanted this particular piece of music. Tell me you don't know this story. And the particular piece of music that they wanted is this incredibly haunting dark track called atmosphere by joy division and it's incredibly kind of doing doing, doing everything you'd Mm. expect a dark heavy joy division track to be so my friend mark the minister just goes and now uh a piece of music as we reflect for a couple of minutes chosen by you know the the relatives and on comes atmosphere by russ abbott oh no 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 because it's just been typed into the spotify playlist and atmosphere i love a party with a i mean but they'll never they'll never forget that funeral that's brilliant (laughs) a mate of mine was at a wedding where the bride had said she wanted to walk into al green's let's stay together and instead of isolating it on burning it onto a single cd back in the day which is what you should have done they just put the pulp fiction soundtrack into the cd tray and instead oh, no. of lining up oh, Al no. Green, let's stay together, the doors open and the bride walks in and it's uh, the bank robbery scene with the voiceover oh, again. God. Any of you fucking bricks move and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> I, a, fr- a, a friend of my wife's funeral, we, we, we were there and she and she chose it. She knew she was going to die and she chose it. And as the as the coffin disappeared through the curtains into the flames, we had Relight My Fire by Take That. <laughs> and we all loved it. She'd chosen yeah. it and we yeah. all loved it. But the vicar had a face like thunder. Didn't, <laughs> didn't like it at all. No sense of humour, those vicars. Yeah, no, I am. Um, this mine's My story isn't really funny at all, but it just reminds me of when, um, when I got married, uh, we had a civil wedding me and my husband and I had rows with the uh whatever the people were like the registrars or whoever like has to officiate that because um uh, we wanted played Ray Charles's Hallelujah I Love Her So and they're like complex it's got Hallelujah in it it's like yeah but we don't believe in anything because if it's civil you can't have any references to God can we did play it I was like what are you gonna do like we did a thing we had a really miserable vicar uh 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 my wife and I's wedding. Uh, we did that thing, you know. You know, has anybody now got any, you know, yeah. any just, just cause or impediment? Yeah. We did a classically coarse, uh, you know, look round kind of double take thing where we very slowly looked round. It got a big laugh, and the vicar was yeah. just like, "You're not taking this seriously." <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> but I mean, that in a way, one one of the things about humour in books is that it's problematic because publishers are afraid of funny books. I mean, it's really sad, but they are because, uh, you know, you know what it's like. You tell 10 people the same joke, 
you know, five of them will laugh and five of them will stare at you. Yeah. So publishers will get sent books that are meant to be comic and they'll go, well, I think this is hilarious, but will anybody else? Or they'll think maybe this is the funniest thing in the world, but I just don't get it. So the safest thing to do is just pass. Yeah. Is that um, why there are so few funny books? I, I, that is true. That is the case. And it's so, and it's so sad. I, I remember going before I was published, going to a sort of crime writing convention and one of the one of the sessions was called "Does Humor Hurt Your Sales Figures?" I've never forgotten that. That was what, what the event was um, was called because because comedy is a weird. You know, we're all disgusted by the same things and largely scared by the same things and also that, but we laugh at different stuff. So you know, to have a straight down the line. I mean, how many straight down the line hugely successful British comic novelists can you name? No, you I know, mean Jonathan Coe and. Yeah. I like Nina Stibbe, I think is funny. Yeah, Nina Stibbe, uh, yeah. you know, uh, um, David Nichols to a degree, yeah. Nick Hornby. Yeah. But actually, you know, you have to go back a bit. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it, it it's it's a weird thing. You have to be very careful with jokes. <laughs> and so that begs the question then, could you have done this book first? So could you have done this for 20 years and then gone to Thorne? Mm, I, I doubt it. I doubt yeah. it. If I delivered this book 20 years ago, I, I really don't know, Phil. That's an interesting question. I mean, there are some books I've written in the past that probably wouldn't get published now because of the current climate, because of uh, sensitivity issues or whatever it might be. I wrote a book called Love Like Blood about six, seven years ago, which is a book I'm inordinately proud of. The book I met about honour killing that I've yes. already mentioned. Yeah, I read it. I'm not sure that would get published now. Really? Well, because so many of the main characters are not me. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Muslims and Hindus. And obviously the book was read by Muslim and Hindu readers and all that to, to make sure there was nothing in there that shouldn't be or that I hadn't got. That, that I, but now I think a publisher might just go, you know, yeah. it's, it, we're in a strange time. Well, they wouldn't, so they wouldn't even put a sensitivity reader on it. They would just not risk it at all. Um, I'd like to think they would risk it, but it's, you know, these days there is a growing, there is a growing move towards writers being discouraged um, from writing about anything that isn't them, which is the death of fiction. I mean, it's just the death of fiction once you go down that road. So, you know, all my books have to be about, you know, straight, white, middle-aged blokes. God, can you imagine anything more tedious? Um, so, so talk us through, because in The Last Dance, Miller gets a new partner. Yes. Um, and so where, where did that character come from? And, and what did you have to do with the writing and then the reading of that for this to get to publication now? Well, again, I, I, I can't rem really remember where she came from. She's called uh, Sarah Zhu. She's of Chinese descent. Uh, and, you know, when Miller first, you know, Miller first meets her, you know, goes back the day he goes back to work, it's like he's got a new partner. She's just been, fo she's been foisted on him. He's been foisted on her. And neither of them are particularly happy about it. They don't immediately get on because Miller uh, Zhu doesn't really do jokes. Uh, and, and Miller's all about the jokes, so, it, it, you know, they clash immediately. But, you know, of course, as you would expect, they grow to become enormously mm -hmm. fond. And, and she's a great character as well. I oh, love I love her. writing about her. Yeah. I love writing about her, especially her strange dark secret that takes place above the King's Ed once yeah, a week. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which we won't give away. But, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the minute you go, I'm going to write a character who is of Chinese descent, you have to think about this stuff. You have to think about... You know, I mean, and, but again, there's a there's a way to come at it that that's com that's comedic. He mm -hmm. meets you just after he's made this big speech. He stood on a table in the office, Miller, and and this is when you reveal that that spoiler alert, his wife has been murdered, or is, that his wife is dead. Because up to that point, you don't know as the reader. 
Um, and he makes this big speech going, look, you know, my wife's dead. What are we going to do? Let's move on. Come on. Stop giving me those little looks. It really annoys me. Don't put your hand on my arm and squeeze in a sort of, because I hate that. And if you do, I'll probably break your wrist or at least, very least give you a very nasty Chinese burn. Then he meets you. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'm sorry about the Chinese burn remark. And she's like, what? You know, so, so the, you know, just trying to get at it through those sort of things, because that is what somebody would say. Yeah. That is what yeah. somebody would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. If, if, you know, if Miller meets a German character who's called Cock, he's going to make a joke about it. And who the hell wouldn't, you know? Um, so, my favourite part know, of that scene is that Zhu's not bothered. That's no, not even registered. Not it's not he's registered going, with her. There's a, this weird misunderstanding when she's yeah. trying. You know, he can see her name because it's written yeah. on her. You know, police ID, and he and he just stares at it. And she goes, "Zhu," and he goes, "Zhu," and she goes, "Zhu," and he goes, "Zhu," and it's like, "Why are you saying my name over again?" And it's like, "Zhu," like like "Zhu," like the stuff you get in the stupid poncy gravy you get in posh restaurants. Oh, I'll just call you posh gravy. So from the rest of that point point on, he just calls her posh. Yeah. Um, and that's become her nickname. For for no good reason other than that simple misunderstanding about how to pronounce her name. But so to write that character, did you have to? Did you have like a sensitivity reader? And do you know what? I'm not even sure you're aware that your mm. books are getting sensitivity readings. I think most publishers have sensitivity readers these days, uh, which they, I think who... is a good thing. Genuinely, yes. I mean, it, it is a good thing generally. But the key to everything is just writing well and yeah. with a degree of respect and, and empathy, empathy and you know it, most of these things that get pulled up as being this is the, they're just bad and they should yeah. get pulled up for being bad um but there was not it's not like i'm dealing with and in fact the only the only conversation that miller and Zhu have about about sort of cultural sensitivities is when she makes the assumption that he's from an Irish background because his first name's Declan. And mm -hmm. he launches into this, oh, right, so I'm supposed to do, what, do the bloody river dance for you now? And, well, I'm only half Irish, so I only ever have half a Guinness. So, stop. you know, they have this big <laughs> row about it, but it's, but it's you know, it's Miller's the one that's talking about his heritage rather than Jew. Um, Miller talks about, um, well, I'll just read the line, because, again, there's no spoilers in this. Plus, you don't want to believe anything they do on those daft TV shows. He smiled when she looked at him. Trust me, I've never met a single copper who likes opera or drives a quirky yet distinctive car. And I wondered, did you put that in? Were these tropes that were on your mind when you're creating a new detective? You think how? Because it must be quite hard, I think, now to create a new detective. Yeah. And there's been so many, and yeah. you have to give them something so that we remember them. Yeah. And obviously, you've given Miller humor. But how do you do that? And oh yeah, and rats. We haven't rats talked about rats and dance. No, you're right. Let's get to rats and dance in a second, or dance, as I say, from Birmingham. Dance. Yeah, I know. I keep saying yeah. the last dance. Between like, the last dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, were they on your mind? Were you like, how do you um, go about I, designing it? You know, how do you design were, a brand new detective from scratch that sticks? They were less on my mind, funnily enough, with Miller than they were twenty odd years ago with Thorn. I remember a really strange moment about you know. Uh, 100 pages into the first Thorn novel when I went, okay, this is where, he, this is the moment where he listens to music. There was a moment like he was in his car or whatever. This is, and then I had to just stop and go, hang on a minute, what music? Well, you know, Morse has got opera and Rankin's got the Rolling Stones and Prague and so many detectives got jazz and I bloody hate jazz and <laughs> what, what's it going to be? And, you know, you, you have to have those things in your mind. Um, but it's, you you just need a character that the reader engages with. You know the the quirks are just they're just window dressing. You know they're just you know a cowboy has a hat and a horse. 
But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to make it, it, it the, your cowboy memorable for, for mm. other reasons. Than, mm. I remember him, he was the guy with the hat and the horse. <laughs> what, what about the fact that his wife had just died or he was, you know, there, there has to be something more going on. So I, I didn't I didn't worry about it too much. Although, you know, yeah, he's got his fair share of quirks, notably rats and dancing. So with the dancing, yes. because I am from Oxford originally, um, <laughs> Was that a passion of yours? Was it just something you wanted to put in? Like, I love dancing. Uh, personally, my mum was a dancer. Um, okay. But where did yours come from? It, it came from that original TV thing. This was the mm. idea that I was approached with. Uh, now my brain's going, which comedians were on Strictly? <laughs> <laughs> you, you might well be on the right lines oh. there. It was So it was that kind of idea. Um and you know, I know bugger all. I know I love a dance. I don't mm. mind a, a bit of a bit of a dance, especially line dancing. You ever done line dancing? Country line, <laughs> I country have, music, yeah. line dancing. Yeah, Ooh, that's hard work. Um, but what I know about ballroom dancing, you could write on the back of a bus ticket. Well, you certainly could have done a couple of years ago. Um, so I found out about it, and it's it's amazing. Actually, it is amazing. I mean, I've never really watched more than about ten minutes of Strictly, but I've but I found out an awful lot about ballroom dancing now, and the strange rules and the strange bits of etiquette and all this sort of stuff. Did you, you go know, to like, some then? Huh? Did you go to some ballroom? No, nope. I just nope. read up on it. <laughs> oh, I did an I did an awful lot of reading on it. Um, you know, just to get an idea of the steps of you know what differentiates a bloody samba from a salsa and a foxtrot from a quick step and all that stuff. But just again, all the weird. <laughs> You know, never walk. There's all these weird. They, there's more of it in the second book, actually. But Mary, who's one of the people uh, Miller dances with, she sort of runs the dance group he's part of. You know, she has all these rules. You never walk backwards off the dance floor. You never. You know, you always have to thank your partner at the end of the dance. All these weird. And I kind of love it. It's a weird sort of old-fashioned. And yeah, it's become huge since Strictly. Um, but just the idea that, and this group of people. So, Pete, for for anybody listening who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, so so Miller and and his now uh, ex wife, uh, dead wife Alex, were very very enthusiastic and very good uh, ballroom dancers who used to compete competitively. Um, and one of the big things Miller has to do is go back to this group, you know, after Alex is killed, and they're still there, all this group, and they're very pleased to see him, and he rejoins them again, and they're like his Baker Street irregulars. You know, they're the people he talks to about the case. It helps that two of them are retired coppers. But apart from that, they're a right weird bunch of misfits. And they all just go to the pub afterwards and talk about whatever case Miller is is working on. Um, so, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting getting into the dance. This book is out today. Wings at Marks. We recorded it two weeks ago. And <laughs> when it comes out and hits top of the chart, which I'm confident it will, I guarantee you, if you had this thought already, that somebody on the Strictly production team will go, you know what, we should approach Mark Billingham. Oh, that he clearly no. loves dancing because he's just really yeah, loves. Yeah, no, people make these mistakes all the time. I got yeah. it, because Thorne is a Tottenham Hotspur fan. I got approached by Tottenham Hotspur, going, "Well, you're a big Spurs fan," and I went, mm, "Not so much." And they went, "Why?" And I went, "I'm a Wolves fan. It, it, it's my character that's, that's a, a Spurs fan." They went, "Oh, that'll do." And I, I got the whole the big VIP treatment at, at what you know, no. what and, and the shirt with Thorne's name on and all the all that stuff, and it was lovely. People do make assumptions. Because yeah. you write a certain people are going to think I've got loads of pet rats, and I haven't. I've got dogs <laughs> and cats like anybody else, uh, like any sensible person. But everything in there, again, I did a bit of research on rats. Rats do make the most brilliant pets. Did you know rats can giggle? No, I also didn't know they were clean. Rats you write in giggle. here how clean they are. Incredibly they clean, incredibly clean, and very, very rarely get sick. 
Um, so they're really nice pets to have. And so he has two pet, uh, pet rats called Fred and Ginger. And I, okay, I'm going to give away a joke from the third book, which I haven't mm. written yet. But I wow. just found out there's a new thing in certain businesses where you get time off work if you have a new pet, right? It's called paternity leave, right? Can you believe no. this? No, I promise you this is true. And I, and I thought, oh, I'm having that. So Miller yeah. is going to get a new companion for Fred and Ginger and have raternity leave. Oh, oh, that was another day off for you. <laughs> that was another day off for you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I should say, like, we're obviously it's funny and we've spoken a lot about why humour is important and works so well here. But I also what I loved about this book, especially, Mark, was how so I don't read as much crime fiction as Phil does, because it's nothing to necessarily do with the violence, but it's more to do with the I'm not interested in the tortured killer's origin story at all i don't mm -hmm. care mm -hmm. um i'm much more interested in <laughs> i don't care <laughs> I, I don't it's like it's not an excuse it's like yeah um, it's really not an excuse so yeah. um but what you write so well about is the empathy with the victims but also you make the the good guys like the people tracking down those who have committed murders so engaging as well and i know that you've spoken about that before but i'm just interested where that kind of came into play with this book and how much you wanted to get the sort of victim and the the relatability of the characters in for the reader. That's uh, that's hugely important to me. And and I agree with everything you say about, you know, killer's origin things. There's a there's a there's a big speech early on in the Thorn series, don't ask me which book, where some somebody's trying to explain to Thorn, you know, oh, he's doing this because of that and because of, you know, he, he was made to hide in a cupboard when he was a kid and he never got a bicycle mm. or whatever it might be. And Thorn's like, I just don't care. Yeah. I don't care about any of that. If it's going to help me catch him, then fine. Mm -hmm. But but that is my job. That That's all I care about is doing that. Um, there were two key scenes that I had in my head before I sat down to write Miller. One was the one was the speech he makes when he stands on the desk and taps the you know spoon against the cup and, and addresses the rest of the team. The other one was when he goes to see um, the woman whose husband has been killed. Yeah, I was and thinking while, of that. While everybody else is doing is making all the noises you make because of police protocol and saying sorry for your loss and taking their hats off and you know giving them cards with bereavement counselling on Miller just Miller just kind of holds her and there's this moment when he because he knows he knows of course exactly what she's going mm. through and what she's going to go through so he he there's this big speech where he basically goes you know she's like how do I go on and he goes well you have to because of this and this and this and lists all the terrible things that she's got ahead of her and. Um, so that's hugely important to me because on the surface, on the surface, yeah, there's stupid jokes and oh, shut up Miller and stop going on about biscuits, you know, or whatever it might be. But behind all that is, is huge empathy for anybody who's lost somebody because he's just been through it. He's still going through it and he will always be going through it. So yeah, that's hugely important to me. And what motivated you to have grief as such a central theme? don't know phil I, I i i've been well i've been lucky enough to not well i lost my dad about three weeks ago as it happens but uh oh, sorry but, but sorry. aside from that like, again not unexpected so it's not like you know i think when you lose somebody violently suddenly completely out of the blue that's something you can never obviously can never prepare for just by definition but how you deal with that i i would not know so i don't have a lot of hands-on experience of of that sort of grief or, or or any sort of grief really um so it's but i've read enough about it there's a, there's there's a couple of really good podcasts about about grief and mm. grief how, how to deal we with it we had Carriad lloyd on this one who does griefcast right absolutely mm. you, well, you I, may know you, you might know from the comedy scene 
I, I think we've met. I think we've yeah. met, but I don't. But I mean, it, essentially, that's what all the crime writers I respect are writing about. Not grief, you know, specifically, but writing about what an act of violence does to to, to the people yeah. that are left behind. You know, obviously there is a mystery to solve and who the killer is and all the usual uh, stuff that that crime writers uh, deal with. But uh, but what's more important is you know, what happens afterwards, that pebble that's dropped in the, you know, the ripples of an act of violence that just ripple out through families and down generations and through communities and all that stuff. That's what we're writing about at the end of the day. And I like the richness that you bring to those scenes as well, because again, not all books, obviously, but some books that I haven't finished or similarly adaptations on TV are the ones where the only way that grief is ever shown is usually a woman grieving something and they're just crying. They're just crying and not doing anything. It's so one note yeah. that it kind of, it doesn't give you anything. And you're like, well, yes, of course that is going to happen, but it's going to happen at weird times or they're going to want to go for a walk or they're just going to need to yeah. do something erratic. And that's what I found so relatable really with this one. That's the scene, the the the, the most common scene, and you see it in, in every one yeah. of these TV dramas is the moment when, you know, the curtain at the mortuary is pulled back. <laughs> And the woman stares down at the body of her husband and, you know, and yeah, and cries or mm -hmm. screams. That's it. And you just go, grief, there you go. Now we've ticked that box. Now yeah, we can move. Done. And also then they'll they'll be like, and then the next day, this time you're like, no, that person's still having a really shit time. Yeah. This is not something that's solved in yeah. 24 hours. So. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, because you let slip a moment ago, you shared with us a joke from book three. Oh, you yeah. said you'd already written two and Thorne's yes. coming back. Just yes. Mark Billingham, how prolific are you in a calendar well, year? I uh, I had a I had a very prolific lockdown uh, because you know there is no excuse. You know you can spend all day in your pajamas um, <laughs> or lounging lounging pants, as some writers <laughs> refer to them. Um, so yeah, I got I got a lot of writing done, and I'm just I'm just ahead of the game. I just got ahead of the game. Right. So you know, um, Last Dance is coming out uh, well today. Yeah. Um, and I've, you know, finished book two, which is called The Wrong Hands. And that's not a spoiler because it's in there's a little excerpt from it in the back of The Last Dance. Um, and I will have to start the next thorn. I like being ahead. I can't, I, I have so many writer friends who are struggling with deadlines or have missed deadlines and are panicking right. and are going, oh God, I've got a month to write, you know, 50,000 words. I'd I'd I would have a breakdown. I couldn't. I'm I'm quite OCD slash anal retentive about these things. But it strikes I've, me from knowing you a bit life. that you haven't got one of these. You're not like a, a rigid book a year guy. Are you? Some some years it's two. Some sometimes it feels a bit longer. It's, than it's a book published every year, Phil. There's right, one, there's, it? It's one book published every year. And again, people say, "Oh, you know, God, that must be a horrible treadmill." That kind of no. I mean, if you're a writer of commercial fiction, that's the deal. You know, I, I do know several writers who did that thing of writing a book a year for, for three or four years, getting themselves an audience and going, now I'm going to spend three years writing the next book. And three years later, their orders, audience is gone. You know, things move incredibly quickly and you do need to keep producing those books. But if you write full time, I don't really think you've got any excuse not to. I don't understand these writers who go, this book took me seven years. I'm like, what have you been doing? It better be the best book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> um, a book a year is no hardship if you are not. Bearing in mind, ninety percent of published writers in this country do have proper jobs, so they get they get up at five o'clock in the morning and they write for two hours and then they mm. go to work and they do mm. it again when they come home. Those mm. are the writers you take your hat off to. You know, yeah. the rest of us, you know, 
uh, flippity gibbets who spend all day looking out the window, um, I've got no excuse. So, yeah, I, and I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't have a book out because I love all the stuff that goes with it. You know, so is, that, is that like genuinely so the book a year thing, which obviously is common in commercial fiction now, is that literally just to keep the momentum up always? So if you're there's a cycle then that you're always talking about, you know, whatever paperbacks coming out, which means that you can then publicize the back copies of a series, which means you can just keep everything kind of like up in the air the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it definitely is. I mean, you know, there are pressures, um, but but. You know, there are commercial pressures. Obviously, the publisher wants a new book to do as well as the one before or even mm -hmm. better if, if possible. But the, the only pressure that actually matters is the pressure you feel to write a better book. You've got to have the ambition to write a, a book that's better than the last. You won't, of course. That can't be possible. You know, I always thought there must have come a point where Usain Bolt went, do you know what? That's about as fast as I can bloody yeah. run. That's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. not going to beat that. Um, <clears throat> and it may be, of course, that your best book is 10 years behind you. You don't know that. But you, you've got to have that ambition to try and write something better. Um, and how and do that... you stop self-doubt creeping in then? Have you ever had a situation where you're on your, you know, you're on your routine and you get to, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 and you go, hang on, is it as good as this one? Every time, right. every single time, and 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 I would be worried if I didn't. I would right, be, okay. and thank God my wife is there to go. You say this every bloody <laughs> book. You know this one's kicking my ass. It's going nowhere. This yeah. is the one where I get found out. And always, you somehow manage to pull it out of the bag, or and it's like it's like the whole thing about having a book to write and not having an idea. You know, I've not got an idea in my head. I'm sitting down to start the next Thorn book next week. I've got an idea in my head. Something will always turn up. It right. kind of does. You'll hear something on the radio, or some yeah, you know, overhear something at a, in a restaurant, or something. You know, something will. But that doubt, it has to be there. If I and every writer I I know thinks the same thing. If you talk to somebody else and you go, "How's your new book going?" They go, "Oh." This is just awesome. This is the best thing I've ever written. That's like, ah, 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 ah. this is, is going to be a dog dog of a book. <laughs> you know, you've always got to think this this one is is not working. You've got to have that, and and not just generally, but every day. You know, you kind of you you finish a day's writing and you go to bed or go and have your dinner or whatever, and then you turn the computer back on the next morning and look at it and go, oh, this is rubbish. I and how much regular really validation do you need from people that you respect? Do you send? Like those first twenty thousand to no, you do you do the no, whole thing. No, I don't. Nobody sees nobody sees anything till the first draft is finished. Then my wife sees it and she has things to say, um, and then my agent sees it and she has things to say, and I do a bit more work on it and then I deliver it to an editor and obviously he has plenty of things to say and I do another draft and it's about done. By that and is it okay? Do you still get grumpy when you get that initial feedback? Like just naturally, yep. yeah. Yep. I've just had that very feedback on book two, and I am grumpy. Nobody, nobody likes it. It's like no, having no. homework marks. Yeah. Yeah, nobody likes yeah, it. Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, if your notes consisted of, this is peerless and perfect, <laughs> you, you'd be you'd equally be annoyed because you'd be hugely suspicious. You'd go, well, that's because yeah. you've not read it, isn't it? Or, yeah. um, you know. I remember uh, doing an interview one time with um, uh, the really good songwriters, Pasek and Paul, who did like The Greatest Showman and they wrote some of the music for La La Land and stuff. And they won an Oscar for um, La La Land initially. And then they said it was really interesting that like that Monday after the Oscars, so many calls and so many people saying, we love you guys. Like, this is great. And they were like, hang on a minute. We submitted yeah. those same ideas like three months ago. Nobody called us then. So is it shit? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, no the notes you want... Uh, nobody wants those notes, which, 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 as I said to you earlier, you tend to get in television sometimes, which is mm. just do it, 
better or different. You know, it's <laughs> we don't know what we want until we see what we don't want. You know, all that. Yeah. We want something that's c- constructive. That that's bits there's not working. Um, but might I suggest you could you could do that or you know, or this is the point. There was a point in chapter seven when I started to think this. You want really specific stuff. Yeah. And and most of the time when you get them, even if it's uncomfortable and painful and you wish you, you weren't, it's validating something you kind of knew anyway. Mm-hmm. There's always a little voice in your head when you deliver going, that that bit's not working, is it? I'm treading water in those chapters there. But when as soon as somebody else goes, Aren't you treading water a bit in those chapters? Yes, yes, I am Ray. Even though you're grumpy about it, you know. But it's a funny, it's a, such a weird process. It's such yeah. a weird process that that and the author-editor relationship is such mm. a strange one. And obviously it has to be somebody you, you know, you trust. And uh I do, thank thankfully. I've only I've only had three editors in 24 years, so I'm doing all right. I wanted to ask you just finally about guitars. Ah. Um yeah, because there's uh, there's a guitar in this that um, I don't want to blow too much, but comes yeah. to a nasty end, shall we say. And uh, I wondered if that had come from any personal fantasy of yours, because we should also explain for people who don't know that you you play that you play with other crime writers, and your band is called the Fun Loving Crime Writers, uh, and we're back on the road. Wow. We're, we're at the I Write Festival in Glasgow next weekend. Can't wait. Um, oh, it's such a joy. It's such a joy. And we're playing at Harrogate this year and at Borders. And the one I'm really looking forward to, we're playing, they booked us to play the Agatha Christie Festival. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm saying to, to do they have they seen us? Do they know? Because um, it's full on very loud rock music, you know. Um, and I'm just, who's I, in it? Who's in the band? Uh, so uh, on drums, Doug Johnston, on shredding lead guitar, Stuart Neville, fabulous Irish writer, Luca Veste from Liverpool on bass, uh, Chris Brookmeyer on rhythm guitar, myself and Val McDermott up front showing off, and uh, <laughs> I'm playing guitar rather badly, just about getting away with it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, in, it's enormous fun. So I decided I wanted Miller to be a musician. I didn't have that thing of what music is he going to like. Yeah. He likes the Beatles, like all right-thinking people. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's, there's more of that in the second book, actually. Um, but thought I wanted to make him a musician, a musician. So there's a little busking scene at the end. And, that, yeah, there is there is a moment when his, his guitar uh, suffers a little because of something that happens. Uh, which is horrible to write. Why anybody would do anything nasty to a guitar. Mm. Oh, I, so I, this was never fantasised about walking off and... No, but when I see footage of, you know, Pete Townsend smashing mm. up guitars night after night, I was thinking, how how could you do that? I mean, I, mm. I know it's great PR and a great stunt and everything. I always wonder, did he really do it? Did somebody just before the last number just, he would wander into the wings and exchange his fabulously expensive yeah. Strat for, the for stunt some one. replica that yeah. he could then smash up? And I don't know. It's, oh, God, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do it. I have far too many guitars than my very limited talent justifies. Um, but they are they're one of those things I can't walk past a window of lovely guitar, old guitars in a guitar shop without, you know staring at them like <laughs> like 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 a starving child outside a branch of greg's that's that's yeah. kind of <laughs> sausage rolls or vegan sausage rolls vegan um, sausage rolls yeah so <laughs> just before we get your recommendations uh, yes. the ultimate question best beatles album i'm not going to do best beatles song oh I, I can go first if you want <laughs> Okay, go on then. Abbey Road. Yeah, do you know down. what? It's it, it's in my top three all day mm. long. It's in my top three, and I think my if I had to pick a Beatles moment, it would be the medley on the second side yeah. of Abbey Road. Yeah. That, that, that is just perfection. Yeah. 
absolute perfection. But favourite album, it, it vacillates between Revolver, Rubber Soul and Abbey Road. Okay. Um, strange, isn't it, that Sgt yeah. Pepper doesn't even make the top three yeah, when it's the most famous album of all time. But no, Abbey, oh, Abbey Road, Thing of Abbey Beauty. Road. Thing of Bell? Beauty. Revolver for me, yeah. Yeah. It is awesome. It, yeah. is, it is just awesome. But but every single... Oh, God, we've got 20 minutes of boring on about the Beatles now. But every <laughs> single album was just such a leap. I mean, when Rubber Soul came out, people just went, what? Mm. What is this? You know, and help before it had been a, a huge move on from the album before that. But to, to go from Rubber Soul to Revolver, you know, which, you know, all the stuff that did and the and Indian stuff and backwards tapes mm. and all that weird stuff, then to Sergeant Pepper, then to White Album, then to, I mean, every single one. Oh, my God, they were gods. They were just yeah. gods. <laughs> and, you know, McCartney is just a legend, just an absolute legend. Yeah, agreed. Anyway. Go on and give us your book recommendations. What have you been reading? Um, first of all, before you tell us what you've been reading, as um, a hugely successful writer, how many do you get sent a d- like a day? It must well, you be loads. Can't you can't see them. There's, there's like a mountainous pile. Right. It is just essentially a wall of books over there. Um, a lot. And do you get do you get to most of them? I don't. There's no, no point in me me lying about it. I don't. I mean, this is a terrible irony. We all become writers because we're readers. Yeah. You know, somebody said to me, "You'll get loads and loads of free books." I mean, it, and it is still a lovely thing to get loads. You know, the only person who's unhappy about the arrangement is my postman, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I love it because I get to read books early. You get yeah. to read advanced proofs and stuff which is which is a real privilege um i don't finish a lot of books i mean i do not finish a lot of books so this is something else we could talk about at a different time but mm-hmm. you know don't finish a book if you're not enjoying it just yeah. don't quite right I'm uh, quite right you'd be amazed at people who do and yeah. get very cross at the idea that you wouldn't finish a book because you somehow owe it to the author you don't owe the author anyway anything apart from anything else you bought their bloody book they're happy as larry you don't yeah. owe them anything after that yeah um, and there's Nick, too many good books out there to plow through books you're not enjoying. Nick Hornby said to me once in an interview, we had this exact conversation, and he said, "I don't get it. If it was a film that you'd rented or watching right. on Netflix, you just turn it off. It's only it's only books. You wouldn't do it with a film or a TV no. show. You no. wouldn't do it with a meal you weren't enjoying. You wouldn't listen to an album that you were hating. It's only a book thing, and it's some. So weird, where does it come from? Is it school it's, days? It's some weird. It's a school thing. It's a weird like 19th century hangover of the fact that books are somehow improving and that you'll be a better person at the end of the book." You know what I mean? Yeah. But but I'm sorry, reading for pleasure. That's the key phrase for me. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actually, I find that reading, so I read really widely and I read, I have a faster reading pace than Phil. Yeah, you're phenomenal. I... <laughs> you can do a book in like five hours. No, not well. Overnight? No, maybe. You've definitely done one overnight. Um. Anyway, but I find <laughs> that if I read, like reading a good book, I actually find... um. Uh, almost like stunts me from wanting to write myself because I'm like I can never be that good but then the more widely you read and you read so many bad books or like sections of bad books you're like oh okay well I'm better than that so (laughs) I find that more inspirational sometimes yeah yeah it's uh, you know I I love reading a really good book when it's when it's a debut crime author that's like (laughs) how can you be that good straight off the bat I mean, you've got you've got to read the people that raise the bar. You've got to read people that just make you gasp and go, "I'll never write a sentence that good." Mm-hmm. You know, we can all just read rubbish all day long, but you've got to read the ones that, you know, as I say, are raising the bar. I'm about to sleep. <laughs> you can edit that out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or we might leave it in. <laughs> but uh, no, I've been lucky. I've been um, I've, I've had some crackers arrive recently. Um, I'm reading. Uh, so if I'm doing events with people, I've got a lot of events coming up. 
because the book's coming out. So I, I always want to read the latest book by the person I'm sharing a platform with. It's just courtesy, for God's sake. Of course, of course. Um, so you can have a conversation. Um, but what else have I been reading? So, so uh, forthcoming books that are really good. The last, the last goodbye by Tim Weaver. It's a David Raker book. He's great. Um, Chris Brookmeyer's recent book, The Cliff House, which is just awesome. So, what is uh, so good about those two in particular? Why did their writing grab you? Uh, well, they're both. Uh, the the Brookmeyer book is a standalone. He, he's one of these annoying guys. I mean, he's in the band. He's one of my closest friends, but he can he can do anything. It's kind mm-hmm. of sickening. He can write really dark procedurally crime fiction he can write satire he can write psychological thrillers he can ah, he can do it all and this, this is just a really good one a really really good one uh the cliff house um raker is a series that i'm new to the the tim weaver series and you know now i'm going to go back and and read them all uh because just just really good writing really really good mm-hmm. writing and a really really uh engaging central character um I've been reading lots of non-fiction about the Beatles, but we won't go back to the Beatles. Um, they're, they're, I'll tell you, if a book has the Beatles on it, I'm going to read it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just looking across. Oh, yeah, uh, All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby, which is just great. I don't think that's out yet. Um, if you've read Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland, he's he's phenomenal, American author. Um, and I've just started uh, the new Megan Abbott, and she is just one of the best best writers in the world, you know, period. She's unbelievable. And I'm only 50 pages in, started in bed last night, and I'm already already like, oh, God, how can you be this good? She's amazing. She's, And I've no idea where this book is going. You know where you just go, where, what journey are you going to take me on? I haven't got a clue, but loving every minute of it. So, yeah, lots of lots of good reading lately. I just want to say congratulations on this new book because um, I think no matter how successful, it must be quite daunting to bring a new series out. But this genuinely had me enthralled, had me laughing a lot. I really was so pleased you had me laughing a lot. And just speaking to you for an hour, it's really clear why your books are so good because you're so infectiously enthusiastic about how you write them and bring them to life, and that just jumps off the page. So full smoke being blown up your ass, mate, because this is superb. Which, again, is a phrase I've never quite understood. Why is that a good thing? <laughs> Why is it good? Well, naturally, I do know because I, I I got so. Do you know uh, the origin? I do know the origin. I got so. It used to, to be a way. Mac? It used to no. People used to think it could bring you back from the dead. It was a weird thing really? in the early days of medicine when when it would you know they'd have some special kind of trumpety <laughs> horn thing and they and they would literally blow they would literally blow smoke up the up the corpse's ass um, because it's always been one of those phrases. It's such an American thing. I don't want to blow smoke up your ass. And yeah. I'm like good. <laughs> I didn't I wake up this morning. That. I didn't wake up this morning thinking, I wish somebody you know, missed smoke up my arse. Um, but no, thanks, Phil. That means a lot, mate. Because uh, it is, it is, doesn't matter how many books you've written, especially if it's a new series. I'm scared to death, I'm honest with you. Because uh, oh, yeah. I've no idea how it's going to go down. So thank you. Thank you very much. by the smoke blowing thing so, so i thought it was to do with the same rock and roll rumor that you probably heard about certain artists liking cocaine blown up their backsides mm-hmm. and i thought it came from that so I, I was completely way off the mark with it yeah so i was i haven't googled it but um yeah is it like an egyptology thing like is it like that ancient do you know what i mean like yeah oh, see, like years ago, and, back stuff to... and yeah but it's weird because it is like the phrase du jour at the moment isn't it? if you're like being 
unnecessarily nice to somebody or giving compliments and you're embarrassed about it. It's quite a British thing to be embarrassed, isn't it? Like if that was, if we were American podcasters. They'd love it. And no offence to our American cousins listening, but they wouldn't have they wouldn't you. have blushed when they said to Mark. Right? Like <laughs> I, I was almost reticent to say how much, but I think because a couple of times, I know he's taking the mick, but I think I did wonder if he thought that I had actually read the book. Mm. <laughs> and I really had. As you know, because yes. I was messaging yeah. you at ungodly hours saying, what yeah. about this? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wanted him to know just how much I'd loved it. And then that that's a British thing, isn't it? You can't really, like, I've told you a couple of times how highly I rate you. And then you mm-hmm. go, oh, thanks. And you don't really know what to say. <laughs> no, never do. No. Never do. Or uh, you deflect, which is what I'm going to do now by saying yeah. that um, I could have totally talked about the Beatles for ages as well. <laughs> oh, is that, is that your thing? Well, it's one of my things, right? Have you like, pre-ordered the new Mecca book? I've got it on pre-order. Do you know no. about it? Uh, explain more. So this book's called 1964, Eyes of the Storm, Ref- uh, Reflections and Photographs by Paul McCartney. And what it talks about is um, uh, in 2020, this is the blur. I might as well just give you the blur. Mm-hmm. An extraordinary treasure trove of nearly a 1,000 photographs taken by Mecca on a 35-millimeter camera was rediscovered in his archive it records the months towards the end of 63 and the beginning of 64 when Beatlemania erupted in the UK and after the band's first visit to the US, they became the most famous people on the planet. And the photo that's on the cover is one you've probably seen before. Of uh, It's not the band running away from fans. It's a backward shot of the fans running towards the band down a mm-hmm. street in what I assume to be New York City. So um, these would be if these are all Paul's shots... You know, so that's yeah. that's on pretty well. Great. I think that's due in June. Lovely. Nice. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening to another episode of Bestsellers. We're still very much enjoying making these. And also thank you to anybody who has donated us a metaphorical cup of coffee on co-fi. <laughs> Quizzical look. You know what I thought you were going to do? Because I know you hate doing it, right? Yeah. I thought you were going to say, thanks for donating the coffee and kind of look at me on the screen. So I would go, the address is... Right. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing now. So <laughs> so um, there's a site where you can basically donate some money to us to buy us a metaphorical coffee. No coffee actually arrives, but um, we may choose to use it in that direction. Unlikely. What we're actually going to do is reinvest it into the podcast. Um, so if you like it and you can spare us the price of a copper, then it's Kofi is the website. So it's ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast. And if you go there, you can do what a couple of lovely kind listeners have already done and buy us both a coffee, which we hugely appreciate to help us keep this juggernaut on the road. Because we should point this out because it's dawned on me only yesterday and I haven't had a chance to tell you this yet, Nat. <laughs> Never mind you listening. Um, this is the longest run we've put together. It is. Did you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this week's nearly broken you with it as well. It has nearly broken me. Yeah, it has. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've had I was a full on grumpy Phil. Oh, yeah. Reading is so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I won't bore you with the reasons why, but we've had to read three books in seven days and it just. Yeah. As I'm well not... as day jobs and <laughs> things. Yeah. It's Child not just like lounging and... on the chaise lounge. No, exactly. We have in if us. it was three books in seven days in the Caribbean <laughs> and all inclusive, yeah, I wouldn't mind. Fine. Yeah. No problem especially if you'd paid. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's a long run, but it's a fun run. And uh, we're going to keep going for as long as these writers keep coming and saying yes, because we've got some brilliant ones in the bag to come as well, although I don't want to jinx it by telling you who they are yet, but they're huge. It's exciting. Thanks for listening. And, uh, yeah, more next week. <laughs>